This morning is our fifth, fifth study uh, in our series on the Living Church. And the whole idea behind this series are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ to an ancient church in um, Asia Minor, which is today Western Turkey. And uh, these powerful words are recorded in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And Jesus says to the, uh, the church at Sardis, I know your deeds, that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. And as we've said in recent weeks, it's possible as a church to have a great reputation. But the most important thing is not our reputation before other people. The most important thing is how God sees us, what he thinks of us. And with this church in Sardis, there, were, there was a lot of things going on. It was probably the in place to be. Probably the best church in town. But Jesus had an altogether different opinion of them. And uh, their reputation was for being alive. But the all-knowing, all-seeing Jesus, whose judgment is 100% accurate 100% of the time, says of this church, they were not, in fact, alive, but they were dead. And over the last few weeks in our series, we've been asking this question, what does an alive or living church look like? And we've... Um, looked at what a living church is in terms of worship, community, uh, discipleship, and this morning our subject is evangelism. Now, those of you who are brand new to the Christian faith, it may be that you are here this morning and you've not yet started on that journey of faith, and you're wondering, evangelism, what's that? Evangelism is essentially the spreading of the Christian gospel, the good news, by public preaching, as I am doing this morning, or by personal witness. And as someone once said, it's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. I quite like that as a definition. I've been in this church, as uh, you all know, for uh, over 25 years. And during that 25 years, evangelism is a subject which I have spoken on, I guess, and I'm a conservative guess at that, over 100 times. And you're probably thinking, is there anything else to say? Well, probably not. But I want to come clean with you this morning. I want to lay my cards on the table. And I want to tell you something now. And if you forget everything else that I've said this morning, I want you to remember this because it is so, so important. And that is, I believe that every person I know and every person I meet would be better off if Jesus was at the centre of their lives. Thank you. I've got one convert over there. A dodgy character by the look of it, but there we go. That is such an important statement, I just want to give it to you again. I believe that every person I know and every person I meet would be better off if Jesus was at the centre of their lives. With Jesus at the centre of their lives, they will have their wrongs cleansed. They will have a hand to hold through the challenges of life. They will have a guide, a friend, a companion. They will discover a purpose for living. They will experience a new joy in their lives. 
They will experience freedom and forgiveness. There will be a new power over old habits and they will receive eternal life. And I also believe passionately that the local church is the hope of the world, to pinch Bill Hybel's famous statement. And if we as Tamworth Elim Church are to fulfil our God-appointed role as being hope of the world and a church that is alive, not dead, there are four things that we need to grasp about this subject this morning, the subject of evangelism. Firstly, we need to understand our calling and mission as a church. Secondly, we need to organise ourselves around our mission. Thirdly, we need to express our message clearly and confidently. And fourthly, we need to live out that mission. So that's where I'm going this morning, okay? It's those four points. That's where we are heading over the next uh, half an hour. First of all, understanding our calling and mission. Sadly, some churches are dying because they have a wrong or a false self-image. The members of perhaps congregations have no real understanding over two things, their identity and their vocation. In other words, what God has called them to be and what God has called them to do. Now, today we hear a lot, don't we, about personal identity these days. People speak about needing to find themselves, meaning to discover what they stand for in life and what they believe in and what defines them as a human being. They're trying to establish their true identity. And if you did a market survey in perhaps the town centre in St. Editha's Square and you asked people to describe themselves in a few words, I'm sure a lot of people will look at you and uh, just be rather dumb and not be able to do that. Some would be, well, they would just offer uh, perhaps a, an assortment of answers. Some might describe themselves in reference to their famous foot, in, sorry, in reference to their favourite football teams, Blues or Villa, or maybe some other team, you know, a, a, higher, a higher team, you know, in the Premier League, not one of these minnows in the lower leagues. Some might refer to themselves in terms of their political persuasion or their job or their career or their hobby or their leisure activity. Some people might refer to themselves in terms of their sexual orientation. But the truth of the matter is this, and I know I've shared this with you previously. Many people don't know who they are because they don't know whose they are. And I would argue that a Christian is defined first and foremost by his or her relationship to Jesus Christ. And when we begin to see who we are in relation to him, everything else then makes much more sense. Some people have a personal identity crisis, but I would also say that that is sometimes sadly true of churches, that there's no real sense of what God has called them to be and what God has called them to do. One false image of uh, a church is where members see its, itself as some kind of religious club, where the main focus of the church is the comfort and the well-being of its members. 
And this kind of view of church is very similar to being a member of a golf club or a knitting circle or any other club. The only difference is that the common interest of church members is religion. The focus is inward. The focus is on themselves. And many members in religious club kind of churches engage in that age-old religious hobby, and you might have heard of it. It's called spiritual navel-gazing. <laughs> and when church becomes a religious club, its members tend to major on minors. They lose sight of the big picture. The main thing is no longer the main thing. And the church becomes a club of cosy compromise, losing sight of the words of Jesus who said that the Son of Man, speaking of himself, came to seek and save that which is lost. And they've lost sight of the words of Jesus. Others will say, well, perhaps if they've not even heard of those words, they, I'm sure they wouldn't have heard of uh, the words of the former Archbishop of uh, Canterbury, William Temple, when he says that the church is the only organization in the world that exists for the benefit of its non-members. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure if I agree with that statement as it stands because the church exists to worship God, which is our first calling, and to create community that speaks so powerfully in our world of the love of God. But I think it, in essence, is heading in the right direction. The church does not exist for itself. So... What is our identity and vocation? And please get this, because this is the big difference between a living church and a dead church. A living church understands that it has been called out of this world to belong to God. Therefore, its identity is found in God, in God's calling on our lives. But it is also sent back into the world to witness and serve him, which is its vocation. And God has no plan B. So, our identity is always found in God. It's found in our relationship to him. He has called us out of the world in order to send us back into the world. Our identity and vocation. And I didn't know Dan was going to read that passage earlier on from 1 Peter chapter 2. But the verse that he uh, finished with there was uh, verse 9, where Peter writes, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who brought you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And I just love that verse. That speaks of us, the church, that we are his chosen people that we are belonging to God, that we are special possession, a holy nation. And the word holy means being set apart. Set apart by God and set apart for God. And that's our identity. And you see, we will never know as a church who we are until we know whose we are. It doesn't stop there. We have been called out of this world. We've been set apart by God and we are being sent back into the world that we may declare the praises of him 
who called us out of darkness into his most wonderful light. And you see, in order to fulfill our mission, we need to understand and be faithful to both our identity and our vocation. That's where it starts. Okay, let's move on. Secondly, we need as a church to be a living church to organise ourselves around our mission. As I just said a moment ago, it's vital to understand our identity and our vocation, that we've been called to be God's special people and that we have been sent into the world to be his people there. But to know that truth is not enough. If we are to be a living church, a church which is the hope of the world, then we will also need to real organize ourselves with God's purpose, in line with God's purposes. And I would say that this is one of the most common faults in churches of all denominations, is that churches are often structured for worship, not mission. Where everything happens for the benefit of its current members. And this is something that we have fought hard not to do. Over many years, Tamworth Elim Church has sought not only to be a worshipping community as we have come together here this morning to engage in worship, and the whole of our lives is worship, but also to be a church which exists for mission. And we've done that over many years through our community projects, community coffee shop and a food bank and a prime time for the elderly and our engagement with the winter night shelter for the homeless in this town and children's and youth uh, and our outreach ministry, ministries, which are not just for our own church kids, but for kids in the community. You see, all of these things exist, not because we are wanting to replace social services, or to give local councils a helping hand, or because we want to get people to think of us Christians as nice people. No. We are quite clear in what we are doing and why we are doing it. Our old, what we're doing is to reach out to people quite deliberately with the life-transforming love of Christ. We're not out there to Bible bash people or to browbeat them into submission, but we want them to come to know Jesus. Why? I might have said this before. Because every person we know and every person we meet would be better off if Jesus was at the center of their lives. And you see, if that is something that we believe passionately, then we need to organize ourselves to fulfill that. That's why. Sadly, I know of some churches that are static and dying because they have inflexible structures that have in time become a straight jacket to them. And should any pastor or church leader dare suggest change, it's, uh, it's, it's to tempt mutiny in the congregation. I became a Christian in the 1970s, in a time when our church, at least, um, one dare not mention that word change. The only change that was ever permitted was in the offering basket. And it was the same. In fact, it was Sunday morning, 10.30, communion service, sun, Sunday, 6.30, gospel service, although we hardly ever saw any unchurched visitors, Tuesday evening, 7.30, prayer meeting, Wednesday, 7.30, youth meeting, Thursday, 7.30, Bible study, and then there were lots of other things for Fridays and Saturdays. And such a, a, um, a church-centered program looked wonderful on paper, but it was disastrous to family life. And since church members were expected to be out at every meeting, 
It prevented them from making friends who were not believers. And it prohibited them from getting involved in the local community or charitable work. In those days, in the 1970s, early 80s, I never heard anyone say that it was actually a good thing for a Christian to become a school governor. No one ever talked in those kind of terms in those days. Or to become a local councillor, or to be involved in some local community group. Why? Because everything started and ended in church meetings. And as I look back, there were many good things, please. There were many, many good things. But we were organised essentially for worship, not for mission. It was a learning church, yes. It was a praying church, yes. It was a, a worshipping church, but it wasn't a mission-focused church. You see, people in my church spoke very often about being called out by God out of the world to be his holy people. But they didn't speak an awful lot about being sent back into the world to witness and serve. Now I thank God that there's a real new sense of adventure and thinking out of the box in many, many churches today. Far greater flexibility. Many churches have embraced um, what the Anglican friends, our Anglican friends speak of as fresh expressions of church. And I just love that that uh, the host church, perhaps, they will host church in, in a variety of forms and maybe in a variety of buildings, public halls, schools, pubs, at various times during the week. And the new forms of church look nothing like a conventional Sunday service. But the motivation and the desire behind it is to reach out to unchurched society in a way that they can understand and interact with. Now, if you were called to be a missionary in China, you were called to be a missionary to one of these provinces. Would you go there expecting them to learn English so that you could tell them about Jesus? Of course not. Would you expect them to know your culture? No. It would be the other way around. You would learn their culture. You would learn Mandarin or Cantonese. You would meet them on their turf. And that's precisely the uh, approach of the Apostle Paul when he writes in 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, chapter 9. He says to the Jews, I became like a Jew. Why? Well, to, to, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. And a good example of this is what we've already mentioned about the lighthouse meeting that we are having in this church this afternoon, which is creating a space for people who have serious educational challenges, their families and carers. So a bold new approach to reach out with the life-transforming love of Christ to people who wouldn't ordinarily benefit from a Sunday morning conventional church service. You see, we need to organise ourselves around mission. About three and a half, four years ago, we talked as a leadership uh, team in this church about our Sunday morning service. And we were becoming increasingly aware that the service was becoming too inward-looking, 
to inward looking in its language, in its style, in its content. And uh, that could prove very difficult for someone who didn't have a Christian background to access its culture. Now, we're not there yet, but we're on a journey. And um, we just noticed at that time that the, the, uh, the church had become in, increasingly in-house without us realizing what was happening. And at the time as well, we came across an American pastor by the name of Andy Stanley, and we read his book as a leadership team. And we were so challenged by his words when he says, it's a shame that so many churches are married to a design by Christians for Christians only culture, a culture in which they talk about the Great Commission, sing songs about the Great Commission, but refuse to reorganize their churches around the Great Commission. We found those words incredibly challenging. And our church leaders um, recognize the church services were largely geared for worship, but not at all for mission. And some of the changes that we instigated at the time were very subtle changes. And uh, for example, one of them, Dan and I, are very conscious of the kind of language that we will use on a Sunday morning service. I don't know if you've noticed this, but neither of us use any religious technical language. Perhaps you've not noticed that. We've both got a tendency to over-explain passages so that new Christians and those who may be just exploring the Christian faith can grasp more easily what is spoken about. We never assume that people know stuff. You know, you know we don't expect you to know who Obadiah was or the background of Nehemiah or why Jesus spoke in parables. We always use PowerPoints because we know that that will help people who are not familiar with finding their, their way around the Bible to know what the Bible actually says. And I know that some of you have been Christians for a long time. You say, well, we, we don't need that. Well, that's good. You don't. That's wonderful. It's fine if you don't, but it's not there for you. And therefore, we are thinking in this way. So much more I could say on this particular point that if you understand your calling and, and, and mission, then as a church, you need to organize it, uh, organize yourselves around that calling. The third area. We also need to express our message clearly and confidently. What is our message? Is our message, come to Elim Church, come and try out our church? Is it, join in with one of our community ministries? Is it, come to Elim Church and make some new friends? Well, it's none of those things. Our central message is the good news of Jesus. We read in Acts chapter 8, verse 35, when Philip spoke to an Ethiopian government official, he told him what? He told him the good news about Jesus. Paul, right at the beginning of his lengthy letter to the Roman church in the New Testament, he described himself as set apart for the gospel of God regarding his son. To quote Paul again, in that amazing chapter that we so often quote on Easter Sunday, the chapter on the resurrection of Jesus, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he gives a summary there of what the gospel is when he says, what I received, I passed 
uh, onto you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And you see, we simply are not declaring the gospel if we do not share with people God's love expressed in the gift of Jesus Christ who came to live among us, to die for our sins and to rise again. And through Jesus, God invites everyone this wonderful new life of freedom and forgiveness if they turn to him and entrust their lives to him. I'm sure that you've all heard the words attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. I'm sure he, he didn't come out with these. I'm pretty sure of that. But the, the words which are often attributed to him are preach the gospel everywhere and in every way and if, and if necessary, use words. If necessary, use words. It's a clever saying. I'm pretty sure he didn't say that. Or if he did say that, he was simply wrong. Because we need words. Paul writes in the New Testament in Romans chapter 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Wow. What an incredible promise. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Hang on, what, what else do we find in that passage? How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone telling them? In other words, what that is saying to Christians, to us here this morning, is that we have an absolutely awesome responsibility that people might not come to know God simply for the reason of us not telling them. That is our responsibility. You see, I'm, I, I'm incredibly privileged to be a part of, um, of this church family. I love being your pastor. I'm immensely honoured to look at what God has done in us and through us and continues to do through us. But our message of the gospel is not come to our church because we do great things for the least, the lost and the lonely. That is not the message of the gospel that we have been entrusted with. We have been entrusted with a message telling people that they can know forgiveness and freedom through Jesus. You got that? This is tough talk this morning, I know. Maybe hard to hear it. That is what we have been entrusted with. God has not got a plan B. It is over to us. He has passed it to us. That we are entrusted with this message of forgiveness and freedom. That Jesus is God's Son, that there is no other name under heaven given to men by which they can be saved. How will they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how would they hear without someone telling them? Our commission, our mission, is not just to be nice or to lend people a helping hand in life or to do charitable deeds. And I make no apology for saying this, that the greatest need of anyone is a spiritual need. I think I've said it previously that you can give an alcoholic who wastes his uh, money on drink. You can give him food to keep him and his family well fed. 
You can give him friendship and emotional support. You can direct him to the right state benefits. But when you give a man Christ, you potentially give them all of those things. And you give a wife back a husband, and a children a father, and he becomes a good neighbor, and a faithful employee, and there is security, and there is hope for the future. And that is our goal. Isn't that right, Graham? Yeah. Our work as Tamworth Elim Church is not complete until we have brought Christ to people and people to Christ. And fourthly and finally, we must live out our mission. There's a great quote by John Stott when he says that the church is supposed to be God's new society, the living embodiment of the gospel, a sign of the kingdom of God, a demonstration of what human community looks like when it comes under his gracious rule. In other words, what he is saying there is that as Christians, we do not only speak the good news, we are the good news. In deeds as well as words, it's not an either or. You see, most people will never have read the Bible. The only Bible that they will ever read is the way that we live our lives before them. And if our lives contradict our message, then we will lack any credibility. We will lack any credibility. God is invisible. No one has seen God. In Old Testament times, the closest people got was to glimpse his glory. And down through the centuries, the invisibility of God has proved to be a great uh, problem for people of faith. In the, New Test in the Old Testament, rather, the Jews were laughed at by their heathen neighbours because they were worshipping an invisible God. Israel was often taunted, where is your God? We can't see him. Come to our temples and we will show you our gods. They have hands and feet and heads and noses and ears and so forth. And the Israelites very often argued back saying that the idols of the heathen were only the work of human hands. Yes, they might have had mouths, but they couldn't speak. They might have had ears, but they couldn't hear. You see, the problem of an unseen, invisible God remains a challenge in our days as it was in theirs. And especially for people who have been brought up with a, um, a scientific mindset. Those who have been taught to examine everything by their five senses. So how does God solve this problem of invis invisibility? He does it in four ways. First of all, through creation. That God has revealed himself visibly in our world, the world that he has created through creation itself. The New Testament speaks, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So the uh, Apostle Paul there, writing in the New Testament, says that you just look at creation itself and creation gives you this indication that there is a far greater, superior being that we as Christians call God. The Old Testament Psalms speak in the same way about this, that the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they reveal knowledge. They have, no, uh, they have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out to all the earth, 
their words to the ends of the world. And I am forever amazed at the universe in which we live. Things seem to fit together in such a remarkable way. I've been told that if the earth was smaller or larger than it is, it would not be able to sustain the atmosphere, an atmosphere where we could breathe. If it were one jot nearer the sun, we would fry. If we were just a tiny fraction further away, we would freeze. If the earth spun more slowly, if it tilted at a different angle, if the moon were nearer, if the ozone layer that surrounds the earth was too thin, any one of those things would spell disaster for our planet. And yet it all holds in this remarkable order and design. What about human life itself? Plants produce oxygen, which we need. We produce carbon dioxide, which plants need. What a clever arrangement. I wonder who thought of that. The design, I would argue, implies a designer. So how else does God solve this problem of invisibility? Through human conscience. Again, put some scriptures up on, on, on the screen for you from uh, Romans chapter 2. It says there, when outsiders who have never heard of God's law follow it more or less by instinct, they confirm its truth by their obedience. They show that the law is not something alien imposed on us from without, but woven into the very fabric of our creation. In other words, our consciences also speak of a moral supreme being that we call God. You know, we often say, don't we, I ought to do this, I ought not to do that. I ought to help that disabled neighbour. I ought to visit my elderly grandfather. I ought not to fiddle my taxes. I ought not mug a pensioner. Well, that was the first thing I could think of, sorry. <coughs> but where does this sense of ought come from? Because this sense of ought implies that we owe something to someone. And I would argue that if we were merely products of some random evolutionary process, it's doubtful that we would maintain such a value system. So again, I would suggest an evidence which points in the direction of this invisible God. So we have creation, we have conscience, we have Christ. Now, you see, if we only had creation and conscience, we could come to the conclusion that there might be a God up there somewhere. But that's all that we would know about him. That he is a great being that creates the universe and keeps it all in order. But we could not know essentially anything else. But we are told clearly what God is like because God has come to where we are. He has come to us 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus Christ. And the scriptures, uh, there are many that speak of this. Let me just put a few up on screen for you. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 18, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is, the closest, and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. And uh, Jesus said in John chapter 14, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. The Apostle Paul, some time later, when he is writing to a, a church in a place called Colossae in the New Testament, he says that the visible image, that Christ rather, is the visible image of the invisible God. One more way in which, and this is the point that I'm really coming to, 
one more way in which the invisible God has been made visible. And that is through Christians. John begins the verse in his first letter in 1 John 4.12 in exactly the same way as he, uh, he does in his gospel in John 1.18. And he starts it with these words. No one has ever seen God. In 1 John, uh, sorry, in John chapter 1 verse 18, this is what John writes. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son has made him known. And then, later on, he says this in 1 John 4, 2. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Now, where am I going with this? I just want you to catch this for a moment. The invisible God who once made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ, now, today, makes himself known in Christians as we love one another. Wow. And that God has called us to be a loving community of people and through our love for one another, people will know his existence. And as we reach out beyond barriers of age and sex and race and rank, we provide evidence of God's love. I'm nearly done. Good deeds create goodwill, which opens people up to the good news. So yes, it's very, very important that we need to proclaim and declare our message clearly and confidently, but also we need to be that message in our world. I'm going to finish with a story of um, I've borrowed from Rick Warren. He tells in his uh, book, The Life, uh, Purpose Driven Life. And he tells this story of his father. Let me just read this to you. My father was a minister for over 50 years, serving mostly in small rural churches. He was, sim he was a simple preacher, but he was a man with a mission. His favorite activity was taking teams of volunteers overseas to build church buildings for small congregations. In his lifetime, Dad built over 150 churches around the world. In 1999, my father died of cancer. In the final week of his life, the disease kept him awake 24 hours a day. As he dreamed, he'd talk out loud about what he was dreaming. Sitting by his bedside, I learned a lot about my dad by just listening to his dreams. He, he relived one church building project after another. One night near the end, while my wife, my niece and I were by his side, Dad suddenly became very active and tried to get out of his bed. Of course, he was too weak, and my wife insisted that he lay back down. But he persisted in trying to get out of bed, so my wife finally asked, Jimmy, what are you trying to do? He replied, got to save one more for Jesus. Got to save one more for Jesus. Got to save one more for Jesus. He began to repeat that phrase over and over. During the next hour, he said that phrase probably a hundred times. Got to save one more for Jesus. As I sat by his bed with tears flowing down my cheeks, I bowed my head to thank God for my dad's faith. At that moment, dad reached out and placed his frail hand on my head and said, as if commissioning me, 
Save one more for Jesus. Save one more for Jesus. Rick Warren continued, and he says, We will not be in heaven two seconds before we cry out, Why did I place so much importance on things that were so temporary? Our life's work, our careers, our homes, our hobbies, our fancy buildings, our technical gadgetry, they will not matter one iota when we come to our journey's end. The one thing that will matter most is that we have helped God's lost children to find their way to heaven. Nothing matters more. The cross proves that. One more for Jesus. Let's pray together, shall we?